episode 136, Innovating to Reduce Costs. Today, I speak with David Westfall Bates, MD, from Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know, talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Today, I speak with David Westfall Bates, MD, from Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. He's working right now on a cluster of initiatives that he categorizes as innovating to reduce costs. We dig into those initiatives on the podcast today. My name is Stacy Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Dr. David Westfall Bates. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. I have a list of innovative initiatives, might be the best word, that you are currently working on. The first one is a study called the Prospect Study. Yes, this is the study that working on that I, I think I'm the most excited about of, of the various things in my portfolio. This is a study that was sponsored by the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation. What we were trying to do in that study was to, we're trying to minimize preventable harms in two environments, the, the ICU and acute oncology units. And uh, we also were focused on reducing unnecessary healthcare resource utilization and, and costs. Intervention consisted of two components. One was uh, putting in place something we call the patient satisfactive model, which involves getting nurses and doctors to ask patients about what they expect in, in real time. And it turns out everybody agrees you should do that, but hardly anybody does it. And then the other thing that we did was we developed a, a web-based patient-centered toolkit, which includes a patient-facing electronic bedside communication center, basically a patient portal. The, the toolkit, we had both a patient-facing component and a provider-facing component. And in the patient-facing part of things, we delivered on an iPod basically all the things that patients and families said that they wanted from us. And what they said was they wanted to know uh, who's taking care of me. They wanted to be able to ask questions and send messages. They wanted to know how things were with respect to safety. They wanted to know what their tests were, their drugs were. So we built all this and put it in place and have tested it in a trial. The, the results will uh, be coming, coming out soon. But the bottom line was that, that patients and families uh, really loved it. One quote was, this is great. Patients need more information about risk, safety, medications. Who's my doctor? You said the goal was to facilitate engagement and minimize harm. So obviously, patient satisfaction is a piece of that because based on the KPIs that you just specified or the quotes that you just specified, it, it, it seems like that is probably also a KPI. How are you translating the patient feedback into the KPI of to minimize harm? You know, what we did was to track the harm that was occurring. And we, we also put in place a, a computerized checklist and then showed patients how we were doing with their checklist so they could see if we hadn't done uh, certain elements. And uh, we think that will have improved our, our performance around doing all the things in the checklist. And things that are in the checklist have been shown to improve safety. 
basically what you're doing is engaging the patient and the patient's family in an effort to help double check or validate that the right things are being done. Exactly. And sometimes it's the right thing not to do some of the things on the checklists, but sometimes it's just that we're, we're too busy. Have you seen that it's something patients appreciate that they have the ability to contribute to the overall quality of care? Yes, patients uh, really absolutely loved it. And I, I do want to note that this is in the ICU and about 70% of patients are either sedated or, you know, are not, not able to engage themselves. So it's often the, the family members or care partners. And I, I think we need to do a better job in the industry of, of working with uh, those folks, especially in places like the ICU. Do you see this as a priority within health systems to be very concerned about what's going on in the ICU? I do think it's a very important priority. It's only uh, 4 or 5% of overall spending in, in most healthcare systems, but it's one of the places in which you can really make a difference. And the stakes are high. The mortality rate in most ICUs is 2 or 3 in 10. And how did you select this as the best thing to do? In other words, if, if you're trying to improve outcomes in the ICU, you know, reduce mortality, reduce harm, how did you cotton on to the notion of patient engagement or caregiver engagement as the way to bend that curve? I mean, there's probably a whole bunch of other things that you could have done. Why did you select this? Patients and families, when they do come to the ICU, often feel overwhelmed there's this enormous information gradient. And our feeling was that breaking that down would probably have a very beneficial effect on the care that's delivered. There's certainly lots of things that you could do in the intensive care unit to make care better. This is just one of them. But I think it's an important development. Let's move on to the next item in your punch list here. Before we get there, though, I'm looking about at, say, five or six things on this list. Are you working on all of these projects simultaneously? Yes. <laughs> Some of them harder than others. <laughs> so do you have a team that supports you in, in these oh, efforts? I, I, I have an enormous team, and there are people who, who are not me who are taking the lead on, on many of the individual chunks of the things that we'll talk about. And that is absolutely critical. I mean, I think in any big organization like this, you need to be doing a number of different things at, at any one time. And why is that? Healthcare is so multifactorial. There are many, many ways to make it better. And it's it's not like there's one uh, silver bullet that is is going to solve all your problems. I think it's a matter of developing a toolkit and putting together the various chunks. I'm going to ask you this question because there's so many who have failed at various levels to achieve success here. And I'm talking about innovation departments who manage to spend a whole lot of money and then don't wind up actually either creating something that works or creating something of value. And when I say creating something of value, I mean creating something that the organization that is spending the cash values. Do you have some sort of mantra when you stand up in front of the, the whiteboard or to ensure that what you're electing to have your group proceed with and spend time and resources on is going to get you to the place that the organization needs you to be? Well, I think the nature of innovation is that you have to be willing to fail and that many things that you do try will fail. 
So you can't pick only things that will be successful. What you try to do instead is is to fail fast. I think there's sort of two main metrics by which innovation uh, departments uh, can can be judged. One is did they come up with ideas or, or innovations that make care better? And then a second is, do they result in something which is an idea that can be used by a company to create value? And most things that you're working on in an innovation group should be directed at one of those two things. In a way, you almost could look at this set of innovations as like your portfolio, you know, like similarly to how any investor might invest in a, in a portfolio of things. And you, you know the numbers, like you've got to have one out of 10 succeed or something. Exactly. And some things are going to be more speculative and, and th- some things will, will be maybe, maybe a little less speculative, but may produce uh, lower returns, that sort of thing. Do you have some sort of official pipeline process that you go through in order to select phase gates or something? How do you? We, we, we do absolutely have a pipeline and, and use an approach in which we evaluate things uh, serially and uh, some, some make it through. You know, most do not. And the things that we're going to talk about today, these are the things which are progressing with impressive speed through the pipeline, which is why you selected to talk to them today, or, or what was kind of the uh, decision-making process that you used? This is definitely greatest hits list. <laughs> what are the stages in your pipeline? You know, like, do you have some sort of model that, that you shove things through? We do. And we actually have a couple of different pipelines. One pipeline is for ideas that innovators uh, within the Brigham come up with. And we uh, basically uh, take ideas from a variety of sources. And then uh, those that appear to have merit get paired with some some resources and, and they get some attention from our innovation hub team. We both look at is there likely to be uh, internal impact or or external impact? Many of the things that we're focusing on through the iHub are, are the main focus is is external impact. Another thing that is on your greatest hits list at this time is a device that sits under the mattress of the bed that you seem excited about. Talk about that. Yes, exactly. And th- this is a, a company called developed by a company called Early Sense. They're from Israel. So here here the backdrop is that. Uh, patient decompensation is is uh, really important. Uh, and inside ICUs, we've monitored patients very closely, but outside of ICUs, we really haven't done that. Uh, in early sense, developed a device that sits between the mattress and the bed, so it doesn't ever touch the patient, and it can measure the patient's pulse, their respiratory rate, and it can track how much they're moving. Uh, the company did a couple of things that were, I, that I think, uh, really smart. One is that they uh, put in a little bit of phase delay between when the device detects something and when uh, someone gets notified so that they can uh, basically do some processing and find signals that are real. They also uh, have done a really good job of leveraging mobile devices. And the way things work with this is uh, the device is detecting things, the system's working in the background. And then if a signal is found, uh, the nurse is notified in real time. And a message comes to their PDA that says something like, take a look at Mr. Jones, his heart rate is high, and evaluate him. We studied this in one small hospital out in California. This study is published in the American Journal of Medicine, looked at around 7,000 patients. And 
patients had a slightly lower length of stay in the unit that they were in. These are med surge units. So it was 9% reduction in the length of stay there, but there was a 45% reduction in the amount of time that they spent in the ICU subsequently. And they were 86% less likely to have a code blue or cardiac arrest. Other things that were notable is that there are only 2.2 alerts for every 100 recording hours. So that's really low. If you look at uh, pulse ox telemetry, they have uh, cardiovascular monitors. They have between 160 and 730 alerts per 100 hours. So they're going off all the time. Uh, with this, there were just two, and, and fully half resulted in, in nurse action. A pretty powerful technology. We did an economic analysis of this and found that uh, in the base case, this broke even within a half a year. Even using a conservative set of assumptions, it broke even within three quarters of a year which is pretty impressive and very unusual for a technology like this. Once again, how did you start to narrow your focus? You, know, you must have had some kind of imperative at the hospital or goal that said, we need to minimize code blues. We need to make sure that, that patients who have been taken out of the ICU are monitored more carefully. But how did you get from that imperative or that goal to let's put something in the mattress? Well, the company had this idea, and they basically came to our group and said, can you evaluate this? Can you see in an objective way whether or not it makes a difference? We did know just from uh, our clinical experience that, that patients often decompensated, and, and we were a little slow to get to them. And that's especially the case in patients who are getting narcotics and patients who are postoperative. What happened is the company came to us. Someone heard the pitch on your team, kind of looked at it and said, huh, I can connect the dots. That looks kind of interesting. So it was basically their capability that alerted you to a potential need. Right. But I think it's healthy to both uh, be listening to what's going on outside your organization as well as looking at your internal needs. Yeah, I can see that. You know, sometimes you don't know what you don't know. And somebody else has figured out that there's a need that's kind of in that space. So by looking at other people's capabilities, which were created in response to someone else's need, you can get a bead on what you might be missing. Right. Moving on to number three on your list, and, and this is going to perk some ears up, the role of learning more about what costs are and defining costs. You've done some work in this area. Yes. Here, the backdrop is that hospitals just don't have a very good sense of, of what their costs are. Uh, we, like many other organizations around the country, have uh, used a technology called EPSI, which is the sort of the national standard for costing. And it's, it's used at many uh, terrific places. But with our implementation of it, it had some, has some limitations. So only that our hospitals have been on this system. So you, it's been hard to do uh, analyses across the continuum. Direct patient activity, which is not associated with charges, often doesn't get uh, costed. The indirect costs are allocated based on statistics and not by any uh, patient-specific utilization, it's been relatively static. So we, we've worked with a company called uh, ValueScope Health, which has developed uh, a new approach, which they call clinically driven uh, patient costing. And uh, here the notion is to develop meaningful costing information intended to uh, enable better decision-making at all levels. It lets you look, do things like what-if analyses and look at cost and, and revenue simultaneously. 
And then really importantly, you can look across the continuum of care, which is you move into ACO arrangements is obviously really important. I think going to be particularly important as you move into arrangements like a bundling. If you are going to engage in a bundle, you really have to know what your costs are going to be. I can definitely see the implications relative to bundling or certain shared savings, where if you're not entirely sure what your actual costs are per patient, you could get yourself in some pretty fast trouble. Exactly. Exactly. And, 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 you know, being able to do some what if scenarios is, is really useful, too. So you can do things like, say, you know, what if we did this much better in this area with respect to quality? You know, how much would that save us? Like, so how much could we afford to invest in that? Uh, you can say, how big a deal is leakage? How, how is that going to affect us? And you can very readily ask questions, are we going to make or lose money across the continuum? Interestingly, we've come full circle to the questions that I was asking you earlier, you know, like, how did you decide to do this as opposed to that? I guess, ultimately, the best answer to that question is you did a whole lot of what if scenarios. (laughs) And this turned out to have the largest return on investment. We got into this in part because we'd done a lot of work with the activity-based costing and Michael Porter's approach. And uh, doing that offered some really helpful insights, but it took us a very long time to do even a couple of conditions. And we wanted something that would scale much more rapidly across all, all the types of care that we deliver. Could you just give an example of patient costs and where this gets complicated? So a patient wanders in the door to get a joint replaced. Like, where do the wheels fall off the bus? Sure. Well, so uh, for both hip and knee, unless CMS changes its plan, uh, everybody's going to be required to participate in a bundle, which means you get paid a set amount of money for that uh, hip or or knee replacement. Now, we've done a a reasonably good job at focusing on what we do uh, while the patient's in the hospital. But it turns out that much of the bundle relates to the care that they get outside the hospital. So if you have not planned out how you're going to use resources uh, outside the hospital, it might be pretty hard for you to do well with the bundle. In addition, you really want to be able to say, compare the seven surgeons in your institution who replace hips at high volume and look and see who's doing better, who who looks different in some way, and, and get them to come together and talk about what they're doing. So that's the kind of exercise that most organizations will need to go through. Right. So you could slice it by physician. You probably could slice it by institution. In other words, if a patient is released to this subacute facility as opposed to that one, then prices go up or down. Exactly. And and some institutions are doing things that are that are really different. For example, there are people now that are doing uh, hip replacements and having patients go directly home. That's even more common now with knee replacement, for example. And exactly how much physical therapy you should do, you know, has, has been the sort of thing that has been a little, little unclear. This lets you look at that kind of thing objectively and, and, and see uh, how much it's costing and, and what the associations with outcomes appears to be. Someone, and this just happened yesterday, told me, asked me if I had read Michael Porter's book called, I think it's called Competitive Strategy. And I said that I had not read that book. And he said that was kind of a travesty and I should put it on my list immediately. So it sounds like you've got some, uh, actually, give me a little color commentary on, on that statement. Would you agree or disagree based on what you just said? 
Well, I, I haven't read the book either. Um, so, but, but, <laughs> okay, but there's that. <laughs> I, I have I have read a lot of his articles. Quite familiar with it with most of the concepts that he that he's pushing, and I do think that organizations going forward are going to have to get uh, radically better at, at at delivering care and at becoming more efficient. If you look at healthcare as an industry, we are just far, far behind most other industries in terms of taking costs out of our system. If we're going to do better with that, we, we just have to invest in tools that enable us to, to look at that in a, in a scientific way and then take a, a appropriate actions. Back when we were talking about the CMJ bundles, you had mentioned that more and more hospitals are discharging, especially for knee replacements, patients directly home. And I know that you've done some work with home hospitals. Is this part of that? It's separate, but we could imagine using the home hospital for, for that kind of thing. Should I should I tell you a little bit about the I would home hospital? love if you tell me a little bit about that kind of thing. We believe that many patients probably do not need to be in the hospital. There are many types of patients who would do equally well if they uh, went home directly and had a bit more monitoring. And one of the fellows in our group, together with uh, uh, Dr. Jeff Schnipper, so it's David Levine and Jeff Schnipper, developed this home hospital here and and just did a small trial of it. And uh, what they did was to focus on patients uh, mostly who had infections like kidney infections, like pneumonia, or exacerbations of a, a few chronic diseases like congestive heart failure or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and then got patients to agree to be randomized to either be sent to the hospital as usual or uh, to go home with uh, extra monitoring. They did that. The monitoring that uh, people got involved uh, wearing a patch that let the uh, home hospital team uh, track their their pulse and their uh, respiratory rate. Bottom line is that patients did very well uh, going home and that this uh, remarkably reduced costs without affecting the uh, likelihood that they'd suffer an adverse event. The initial pilot was successful, and we're planning to uh, broaden this and to implement it in a you know in a much bigger bigger way. And I'm confident that there are many other types of patients that might benefit from this kind of approach. An example would be somebody who's uh, low risk and who's who's uh, post knee replacement. Are you in some way, shape, or form stratifying patients or segmenting patients? I'm thinking of, of social determinants of health here. If a patient is discharged directly home and they do not have a caregiver or, the, or a social support network or transportation, then they're probably not going to do super well. Absolutely. So this requires doing a very careful assessment of, of that sort of a set of factors. And that's done before anybody's considered for, for an arrangement like this. Does this have anything to do with another thing that I know that you have been working on, which is high-cost patient management? I would assume that social determinants of health are, are a big piece of that, and, and maybe that analytics that you just mentioned are a part of it too. They are. Let me tell you about that part of things. I, I think as a network, the thing that we've done in terms of reducing costs that's been most successful has been our high-cost uh, patients program. Uh, we have a program called the Integrated Care Management Plan. And the backdrop here is, at least in a Medicare population, about 5% of patients account for roughly half of spending. 
So if you're going to manage a Medicare population, the first thing that you should do is to identify that group. You need to include data about mental health, socioeconomic status, marital status, living status, all those things, as you just alluded to, have a big impact on how patients will do. And particularly important, I would say, is mental health. Roughly half of the the group overall turns out to have some sort of mental health issue. So uh, our program uses a tool called the LACE to risk stratify. It's a publicly available tool. We take claims data from the last 12 months, take clinical conditions from a list of about 30 that are categorized as high, moderate, or low acuity, and then there are combinations of conditions from each category which determine a level of clinical complexity. Uh, We use hospitalizations, emergency room visits, and other types of utilization to trigger inclusion and then check in with the doctor to see whether or not it really makes sense to include the the patient. And right now, we're managing about 3,000 patients. Uh, Most of them are women, 61%. They have an average age of 71. Uh, 32% have a formal mental health diagnosis, probably many more actually have some issue. They take an average of 17 medications per patient. They uh, cost on average about uh, $2,000 per member per month, which is two to four times higher than, than average. And hospital admissions account for uh, half the costs. All those patients get a care manager, and they work, they're embedded in the primary care practices. They work closely with uh, primary care. And we've showed that using that approach, we've been able to uh, decrease the the rate of inpatient discharges from about 40 per 1,000 patients to uh, just above 30 per 1,000 patients over roughly a one-year period. Wow. And the the publicly available tool was called LACE, you said? It's called LACE, yeah. And it turns out it's not so critical which tool you pick to stratify. There are a number of them. The important thing is that you use a tool. I had heard that obviously mental illness is a force multiplier, you know, as it relates to costs. You know, you take any condition and put an exponent on it if there's mental health in, in the picture. Well, that that's definitely true. Think about someone with diabetes. You know that their, that their hemoglobin A1C is really high. You know, if you do not deal with their mental health issues, it's just going to be very hard to control their their blood sugars. You, you, you almost might might not as well bother. And many healthcare organizations, we're no exception, are are a little short on mental health uh, resources. So so most organizations, I think, will find that they need to invest in uh, mental health and doing a better job with mental health to succeed in this area. Now, are those case managers that you have primarily focused on? Are they more care navigators? Are they more mental health counselors? I mean, how are you achieving the gains that you've achieved? What's their primary focus? They really deal with whatever the patient's key issue is. So what they have to do is is to uh, kind of act as detectives and figure out for this patient, you know, what are the key barriers to care? Is it that we need to uh, get them transportation to the clinic? Do they need to see a psychiatrist? Really, you know, what is what is the underlying issue that needs to be addressed most effectively? Another thing that you mentioned is that this is very primary care focused. And as we all know, there is a big lack of primary care physicians who, who are available. What are your thoughts on that? You know, how, how can an organization, you know, as we move into value, PCPs are, are of 
increasing importance to be able to, you know, participate in and manage programs like you've just mentioned. And there's just simply not enough. I think where we're headed is that we will involve uh, more nurse practitioners and PAs in in delivering primary care and that will uh, change the role of primary care providers so that they spend most of their time dealing with uh, more complicated, sicker patients and that patients who are more well are are dealt with by other people. There's just uh, too big a shortage to really manage it another way from my perspective. We will vis-a-vis innovation and innovative problem solving, figure it out. Yep. All right. So SCAMPS, which is something I was very intrigued by. It's kind of a condition-specific approach. So add, add some color there. Sure. So let me tell you about that. It's, a, it's an approach that was developed over at Children's Hospital. It stands for Standardized Clinical Assessment and Management Plans. Um, the way things work is uh, they can really be thought of as pathways. They're developed by uh, physicians. One difference from traditional guidelines is that deviations are permitted, encouraged, and tracked. Uh, there's continuous improvement to the to the pathway through robust data collection. Uh, a key is that you pick what you think are the three or four inflection points in terms of treating a specific diagnosis. I'll just give you some of the conditions that we've dealt with include things like distal radius fracture, uh, acute kidney injury in the in the MICU, uh, chest pain in the emergency room, among others. So, uh, for example, for uh, the distal radius fracture, it turns out that we have six surgeons who do most of our uh, repairs of distal radius fractures. They basically hadn't talked a lot about how often they took people to the operating room after somebody broke their their wrist. We had them uh, get together, meet, uh, develop some criteria about who they should take to to surgery. And uh, what we found at the beginning was what you often find in quality, which is a wide variation in the operative rate by a physician. Uh, After they met and talked about uh, what the criteria should be, uh, they all moved together towards the median. And it turned out that there was an 11% reduction in the overall uh, surgery rate. Uh, there was also a 14% reduction in the total costs associated with this condition. You were focused on this because of why? Uh, we picked it because it's one of the conditions that we had not worked on extensively before. So we pick conditions because we think they're ones that are likely to have significant costs for which there are might be some opportunity for, for improvement. I'll give you, give you another example in, in, for chest pain in the emergency room. We looked at the percentage of patients who had stress tests in the emergency room. We thought that too many people were, were getting that. If they were low risk, we were able to reduce that uh, by 54%. And there was a 27% reduction uh, in the percentage that, that were admitted to cardiology or uh, medicine. So if you extrapolated that to, to a full year, it's, it saved the institution about $4 million in costs. Basically, what you're doing with SCAMPS is you plot out this is the patient journey or the progression, the way that the patient will move through their disease and and their treatment paradigm, step one, step two, step three, step four. And then you figure out where along the way, the kind of where the crossroads are, where the pivotal decisions will be made. And then you focus on making better decisions in those moments. That, that's exactly right. And, you know, at the beginning, you don't know if you've picked the crossroads correctly. And often we find that we have to iterate. You, you often don't get to a lot of benefit until you've been through 
a couple of cycles because people think that they know what the crossroads are, but often they don't get it right uh, just at the beginning. Then you ask people to track what they're doing when they get to those crossroad points. There aren't a vast number of them for any one of these scamps. And then over time, you show people the data, you look at the outcomes, and you see how you can do better. And if anyone is interested, do you have a website or, or something where there's links to all these various initiatives? We have a couple of websites, but the best thing is probably just to email me directly. Fantastic. And do you want to give your email address? Sure. My email is debates at partners.org. I thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Dr. David Westfall-Bates. Thanks so much for having me. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.